everyone, and welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to welcome you all back to our Revelation series. Today is episode nine, and we are closing out the letters to the seven churches, these seven powerful letters that Jesus addressed with each church in this region of Asia Minor, modern-day Southwest Turkey. Well, today is no exception. It's another good one for us to really take hold of and apply to our own life. And it is the letter to the church of Laodicea. You know, if there was one church that many people today associate with the modern church is Laodicea, because it was a church that Jesus called lukewarm. They were in need of nothing, not even him. So that makes me ask a question before we get started. In light of that, what is your faith like right now? Are you hot in your faith? Are you passionate and zealous for the Lord? Or are you cold? Or are you just lukewarm? Today's letter, I think, is a message for all believers, especially the last half of this episode. There is nothing worse than being a lukewarm Christian, my friends. And Jesus makes that very, very clear in his letter today. And I have to tell you, For me personally, these letters challenge me every time I go through them. Am I living up to my faith in a manner worthy to bear the name of Jesus Christ? And I pray that as we go through these letters and finish these out and the rest of this book, that we reflect and ask ourselves that same question throughout. So we're going to begin this letter by reading the letter or this episode by reading the letter. And then we're going to go into a description of Laodicea. But then we're going to go into the heart of what Jesus is really saying. And so you don't want to miss this last half. And to the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyesalve that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me to him who overcomes. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, the church of Laodicea is the last of the seven churches addressed in Revelation. And this harsh pronouncement in this letter suggests that the Christians at that time in Laodicea were wavering in their commitment to their Christian faith. So let's figure out what's going on in this city and then in this letter. You know, it was a city that was actually founded in 261 BC by the Seleucid king Antiochus II. He was the king of the Hellenistic Seleucid kingdom. 
and he named it Laodicea for his wife, Laodice. I'm probably not pronouncing her name right. But the city had a beautiful location. It was in the middle of that Lycus Valley that we spoke of in the last episode. And it was located actually between the church of Colossae. So remember the letter to the Colossians that Paul wrote? So it was located between Colossae, which was nine miles to the southeast, and another city called Heropolis, which was six miles to the north. And those three cities would be like what we would call today a tri-city. And the Apostle Paul actually makes at least four references to Laodicea in his epistle to the Colossians, even though he had never visited it. But he considered the three, Aeropolis, Colossae, and Laodicea, to be sister cities. And Laodicea was wealthy. It was industrious because it was the richest city in the region as they were the head of the banking and finance. Its architecture and buildings were impressive and they decorated the city with all their luxury. It had only one theater, or it didn't have only just one theater, it had two. And it also had a large stadium that could accommodate up to 60,000 people. It also had four agoras, which are marketplaces, we've discussed that before, with space for about 4,500 shops. So you can imagine the size and the wealth of this city. But in this region, as we've already discussed, this city often suffered from earthquakes. Remember, this Lycus Valley was a big earthquake-prone zone. It survived through the earthquake of AD 17, but Laodicea was completely destroyed when another earthquake occurred in the reign of Emperor Nero, and it was the earthquake of AD 60. And when that happened, the inhabitants of Laodicea They declined all Roman assistance to rebuild the city, and instead they wanted to use their own money to quickly rebuild it. That's how wealthy they were. But they were a people that prided themselves on themselves and on their own ability, but also on their own wealth. They had need of nothing and no one, and this was the attitude that became the attitude of the church. Now let's talk about the church for just a moment. You know, what do we know about the church of Laodicea? You know, we're not told who founded the church in the Bible, yet from the evidence that's in the New Testament, we can infer that Epiphras, one of uh, Apostle Paul's disciples, likely planted it. Because we know that Epiphras was founded, he founded the church of Colossae. That's told to us in the first chapter of Colossians. And Colossae, again, was one of Laodicea's closest neighbors, and it's believed that he founded this one too. So Epiphras founded Colossae, and it's believed he also founded Laodicea. In fact, Paul calls this man his fellow servant and minister on their behalf. Therefore, it seems plausible that he would also be responsible for for planting this church here. Now, Laodicea is actually mentioned four times by Paul in the book of the Colossians. So I just want to make note of that for a minute and point these out to you so that you can highlight them in your own Bible. In Colossians 2.1, Paul says, Now I want you to understand what great concern I have for you and for those in Laodicea, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Like I said, it's assumed that Paul never visited there or Colossae actually. But he's writing this letter to the Colossians and he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. He always puts Laodicea and Colossae together. It's interesting. 
And he was in conflict because there was this different kind of preaching that was coming into the area. And he wanted to make sure that they had a correct view of God and a magnified view of Jesus, actually. And the preaching that was coming in was a mixture called syncretism. People were mixing Jesus in with everything else and calling it good, calling it the gospel. And my friends, that's the exact same thing that we are experiencing today. There is a great researcher for faith in America, George Barna, and he is doing extensive research on this topic right now. And just in the last year and a half, his findings have discovered that only 6% of adult Americans who call themselves Christians hold to a biblical worldview. The rest, the 94%, they're embracing a mixture called syncretism. They're embracing other beliefs from new age to Marxism. And it's syncretism. It's the same thing the Church of Colossians was dealing with and the same thing this whole area was dealing with. And so what Paul's trying to do is give them an enlarged view of God. The other part in Colossians where he brings this up is when he says, for I bear witness to him that he has much zeal for you. He's talking about Epiphas and for the, I'm probably not pronouncing his name right either. And for those in Laodicea and for those in Aeropolis. So here in Colossians 4.13, Paul mentions all three cities, Colossae, Laodicea, and Aeropolis. And he's mentioning in particular his faithful friend and servant, Epiphras, who was the preacher for these people. And Paul's letter suggests that Laodicea had a very early Christian community with close ties to the one in Colossae. And so Paul is sending people into this area to plant churches, but specifically makes reference to these three. And at the end of the letter, before closing it out, he makes mention of Epiphras again, where he says, I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you. So this is obviously a pastor who truly loves his people. But not only that, Colossians 4, 7 tells us that Paul was even sending another person to meet them, Tychicus a beloved brother, a faithful minister, another fellow servant in the Lord. And why was he sending him? To tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. But he was also sending him there with Onesimus. Remember, he comes in in a different book of the Bible. He's another faithful and beloved brother. And they will make known to you all the things which are happening here in Ephesus, basically. And so there's all this correspondence going on, and Paul is bringing in these three cities. So this letter is not just going to be read to the, read to the people in Colossae, but it's going to be read to the people in Laodicea and in Aeropolis. Because when he gets to the end of the letter, he says, when this epistle was read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So we see that there is this connection. So what's the main message that Paul is trying to give to this church in Colossians to Colossae and to Laodicea is to stick together. Paul was sending people there to encourage them, comfort them, and to reconnect them to the rest of the body to stir up and remind them about their mission. Why did he need to do that? What was happening to this church in Laodicea? Well, 
it's important to understand that near Laodicea was a place called Pamukkale, and it too was a small city, but it was known for its hot springs and things called travertines, which were terraces of this carbonate material that are typically remnant of flowing water. And let me explain what that means. What would happen in this area is the rains would come down and the water would go into the earth and the earth underneath was so hot in this area, these hot springs, that it would heat up that rainwater quickly, mixing it with the salt that was found there. And it would bubble up over the land and then crystallize. And it created this area, uh, these terraces that were on this mountain. And it's a well-known tourist attraction today, actually. And it's called Cotton Mountain. It's a crystallized terraced mountain of molten salt water. If you were to look this up today, you would see it looks white as snow. It's a mountain that is all white, but it has these crystallized terraces. See, in the total area of Pamukkale, there are 17 thermal springs, and they get really hot. They range from temperatures from 35 degrees Celsius, which is 95 degrees Fahrenheit, all the way up to 100 degrees Celsius, which is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, we're talking hot water. And so in addition to that mountain, it would form in these terraces, it formed these pools where people would go and lay and sit in these pools. And you can even see pictures of people today going to sit in these pools because these pools have healing purposes. They, it's high in salt content, salt content kind of like the Dead Sea when you go to Israel. The sulfur in this water is a healing agent. Supamukali was and still is a very popular place to visit even though the water is piping hot. Now, you can drink the water when, if, when it's this hot, if you want to. And you can drink the water when it's freezing cold. In both conditions, you can drink the water, either super hot or super cold, because the salt content in it will act as a healing agent to you, and people would drink it to settle their stomachs and other things. But the only time you couldn't drink the water or you shouldn't drink the water is when it's lukewarm because it becomes an emetic. It makes your stomach upset and sick to the point of vomiting. And that's what happened. Laodicea wanted to get this water. They wanted to bring this healing water to their city. So they built, they had the money. They built these aqueducts that would go from Pamukkale to Laodicea to transport this water. But by the time the water would get through the aqueduct to Laodicea, the water would be lukewarm. So the people couldn't drink it at all. If they did, they got sick. Well, despite not being able to drink it, they still brought the water in because they wanted it either way for their fountains and they wanted it for their baths. They could afford to pipe this water in and have it as a luxury so that they too could have the healing properties afforded to them. They just couldn't drink it. And this is the point that Jesus brings into this letter. He says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is, this is a strong statement and the people would know exactly what he's talking about. Friends, choose what kind of follower you are going to be, hot or cold. But instead, these guys were lukewarm. And he's saying, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Vomiting means he is going to get rid of it out of his body. 
That's what happens, right? Vomiting is this violent action to rid our bodies of something. And Jesus says that he's going to get them out of his body. He's telling them basically decide what you're going to be. A church that runs hot for Jesus is a church, my friends, whose lamp is lit. It's a, it's a church on fire. In a condition like that, you never have to advertise that you're a believer or that you live for Jesus. People will just know, right? But people will also know if you're lukewarm because you have nothing different to offer them than what the world already offers. Well, that's what happened to this church. They became complacent. They had need of nothing and no one. They were well off. They weren't struggling. They weren't being persecuted. And Paul says in 2 Timothy, right, that those who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, they weren't. They didn't have a lot of the same problems the other churches did. They went lukewarm. And they were good for nothing. And friends, Satan doesn't bother with a church like that. They're a threat to no one. He has nothing to worry about. The churches that disturb Satan's kingdom, they're the ones who are operating hot, led by the Spirit of God, walking in the Word, persevering, praying, fasting, enduring, overcoming, bold, humble, not loving their life unto death. Now a church like that, that's a threat. And so Jesus gives them a picture they can relate to. They're siphoning this water from Pamukkale, bringing it into Laodicea, but they can't drink it. It's lukewarm, and so are they. This is not a hot church. It's one that's halfway up and halfway down. It's always vacillating. It's never in a state of what God wants, which is constant victory. So then he says, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now, come on. You know, this flies right in the face of those preaching prosperity. If prosperity is God's order, why does he rebuke it here? Why doesn't he just compliment them and say, you're living exactly as I want you to live? There's nothing wrong with being rich. That's not what I'm saying. The the fact is they were contented with it. They were satisfied. That's the danger when you get to a level like that. You climb a hill, you reach a plateau, and then people camp out on the plateau as if there's no other height to be gained. And that's this church. That's many of us, actually. We're contented. As if the heights of our faith, the heights of God have already been reached. Listen, my friends, there is no finality in the Christian life this side of eternity. Nobody knows it all. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But one day that veil will be taken away. And you know what we'll be? We'll discover how blinded we've been on all of our lives to realize how little of God's possessions we've never reached out for. Because we're so easily satisfied with the comforts of this world. And we truly have no idea what he has in store for us. And what's available to us. And this church, this church, he gives no no commendation. He only gives them condemnation. And as I said, Laodicea was a wealthy city during the Roman period. It wasn't just located on... um, Not only was it located on these major trade routes that connected it to cities like Ephesus and Smyrna and Sardis, but 
It was also the center of the textile production and, of course, the banking. Do you remember the story of Cicero, who went on a vast journey halfway around the world, and then he said he cashed his credentials for money in the great banks of Laodicea? Well, in this letter, there's irony here. There's cynicism here, almost like a holy scorn that Jesus is giving to these people. From the lips of the Son of God, he is scorning them. The people of this church are going to know exactly what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about garments and wealth. I counsel thee to buy from me. You're naked. Buy some clothing. Well, one of the main industries of Laodicea was they made the best clothing in the world. And Jesus is calling it rubbish. The city was associated with the textile industry that focused on um, black sheep wool production. There was a particular type of sheep that they had this black wool. And so Laodicea was known for this particular black wool garment that was very shiny. And so if you were a Laodicean and you were seen walking about in one of those black wool garments, it sent a statement, a message to the rest of the people there that you had money, that you were wealthy, kind of like designer things people wear today, right? Or the purses women carry with the names on it, right? It'd be the equivalent as if we're walking around in luxurious fur coats. It makes a statement. Well, that's what these garments were. They were a sign of wealth and luxury. And what does Jesus say? I counsel you to buy from me. How do we buy from God? You know, we don't work for our salvation, but we do work for our rewards. We're not going to collect crowns in heaven as souvenirs, my friends. We earn them. And God doesn't reward us for our accomplishments. He rewards us for our faithfulness. Some people in heaven will rule over five cities. Some are going to be ruling over 10 cities. There's a cost to faithfulness. Think of the parable of the talents. We're going to see some very strange things in heaven. The people who are faithful, where it has cost them so much, Faithful, even in the hidden things, the inner things of their heart, they will be the ones rewarded greatly. It ain't going to look like it does now. This place was rich and had money, and yet he says, you buy gold from me. Buy gold from me. What is he talking about? He's talking about the gold of divine truth. The garments are the garments of righteousness. Gold that is refined in the fire that you may be rich in both. Come and do business with me. He doesn't really care about how they parade their wealth in those black garments. They need to go to his market and buy white garments and gold refined in his fire. Peter even talks about faith, our faith, right? Being found to be more precious than gold that is tested by fire in his epistle. I think that's first, maybe it's second epistle. That's what it is. It's our faithfulness. And that's what Jesus is looking for. He is looking for purity. He's looking for a purity that is tested, a faith that is purified by his refiner's fire. We are truly conforming to the image of Christ. And our garments are without spot, without stain. They are lovely, heavenly, white garments. That's what he's talking about. And then he says in his letter, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. 
Well, Laodicea was also known for its famous medicine school, school of medicine, and they researched eye diseases and produced this so-called Phrygian powder, excuse me, for the treatment of those eye diseases. And so they would produce these eye ointments and ear ointments also, actually. And Jesus is telling them to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. I mean, this truly is like a holy scorn. He keeps bringing in one thing after another from this city to this church. This church had everything, but they couldn't even see that they were naked, poor, and blind. They couldn't see that they got caught up like many of us do in the world around them. They became indifferent and lazy and their wealth and lack of religious pressures gave them a false sense of security. So he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus is saying that he loves them, but it's because he loves them that he is rebuking and chastening them. The church needs to understand this. We need to understand this today. We have this crazy mixed up view sometimes of the love of Jesus. You know, this type of correction is important for our spiritual health and growth, and it is love. There is even love found in his judgments. What does it say in the Psalms? His tender mercies are over all his works. Does that mean his mercy was over King Nebuchadnezzar when God used him as an instrument of judgment against Israel? Right? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. Jesus loves them, but he is going to rebuke them and he is going to chasten them. He is revealing things in this letter that we too should be examining within ourselves. Have any of you out there gone lukewarm, in, especially in light of what's going on in the world? Or have you become a Christian who is neither hot nor cold? And he's saying, be zealous That means be fervent, be passionate, be committed to your faith and repent. Remember, we've said this before. Repent in the Greek means change your thinking, change your mind. And in the Hebrew, it literally means turn around. If you've been facing one way, turn around and face the Lord Jesus again. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You know, this scripture, it is so often used in evangelistic meetings. Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart, right? Well, the correct exegesis tells you he's not there. He's not knocking on the door of your heart. He's knocking on the door of a church. How can that be? We haven't even gotten to the fifth chapter of Revelation of this long book. And Jesus is already finding himself outside of his church. Do you ever wonder that? Again, picture yourself as being part of this house church, my friends, being accused of being lukewarm. And then Jesus somehow finds himself at this critical time in this first century outside of his own church. How many churches today, or even ourselves, how many of us are leaving Jesus outside because we've embraced the mixture and he's knocking to be let back in? And the sad part is, Many of us don't even realize he's not there, that he is on the outside. How is that the world couldn't get on with the holiest man that ever lived, but it can get along with you and me? 
Don't you find that interesting? That the world couldn't get on with Jesus, the holiest man that ever lived, but yet somehow in churches today, the world can get along with us. Are we compromised? Have we no righteousness that reflects on the corruption of the world? And yet we meet week in and week out, no idea that he may not even be present in our churches with us. Not every church. I stand at the door and knock. Who stands at the door? I'll tell you. These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Their Redeemer is standing at the door. Their Savior is standing at the door. Their Sanctifier is standing at the door. Their coming King is standing at the door trying to get in. You know, doors are very interesting in the Bible. We just covered that in our last episode, didn't we? You know, he has the key of David who opens and and uh, no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, right? Well, Noah built an ark and God said, leave the door alone. I'll shut it. What about the virgins who are left outside? They knock on the door saying, open unto us. And he said, I never knew you. What about all those men who are doing miracles and signs and wonders? And when they get to the judgment seat, God puts the torch to their life and it's a pile of ash. I never knew you. It's wood, it's hay, it's stubble. Your life can be wood, hay, and stubble, or it can be silver, gold, and precious stones, right? Wood, hay, and stubble, those are the things, those works that we do for the Lord that are above the ground. It's ministry everybody can see, while the rest is below the ground. The things that are the hidden things that he, the world can't see, where we can't get the approval of the world, but God sees. And so he's outside the door, and he's still out there. Take a look around at how many churches are dying right now. Or the big, beautiful buildings that once stood are now converted into apartment buildings, yoga studios, restaurants, right? He's still outside the door, my friends. Here in Colorado, you can fill up Red Rocks Amphitheater for yoga on the rocks, right? And barely get five people to show up to a prayer meeting at the local church. Where is Jesus in your church? Who is really in control of your church? But then he says something beautiful. All it takes, if anyone hears me and opens the door to me, invites me back in, right? I will come to him and dine with him. It only takes one. It only takes one. So pray for your church. Pray for your pastor. Pray for the body of Christ in your area. God has given you a sphere of influence. Use it. Pray for the Holy Spirit to come into your church and welcome him back. And then it says, To he who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There's an expectation, my friends, that Jesus has of his church in every generation, and it's to be overcomers. Just as he overcame, he wants us to overcome, which is the whole reason the Holy Spirit was sent to us, 
to help us overcome. He did not leave us orphans here. We're not alone here in the midst of all of the shaking going on around the world. His spirit is with us every step of the way if we invite him to help us. And knowing how difficult to overcome the systems of the world is, he is offering those who do a place on his throne. I mean, wow. That's a position of rulership, a position of authority. We won't know what that fully means until it's fulfilled, but it should be enough of a motivation for us to choose this day how we will serve him. And so did this church make it? Well, I can tell you this. A catastrophic earthquake hit this region of Laodicea, Aeropolis, and Colossae in A.D. 60, as we mentioned earlier. When Paul sent his letter to the Colossians, it was more than likely arrived before the quake hit, which means the tragedy of that is when the quake hit a few short years after this letter to Colossians, Colossae was destroyed, fully destroyed, and it was never rebuilt. And so there is a chance that a lot of the names mentioned in this letter may not have made it, may have perished in that earthquake if they didn't move on to another city. In fact, the only remnant of Colossae today is a mound that you see where it's believed the ruins are actually buried. Laodicea was also destroyed in that quake, as we mentioned, but it was rebuilt by the people of the city because of their wealth. And that city lasted, even though it's much smaller in scale, more like a village until the 7th century. But we don't really know what happened to the church between that time and this. And today, all that remains of Laodicea are the ruins of this once wealthy, vibrant city that was the banking and finance hub hub of the region. You know, may this be a warning for us. In a moment, tragedy can strike any time, and our lives could change drastically or perish. And we need to make sure that our faith is where it should be, that we are not running lukewarm like the rest of society today, my friends, so that when our time does come to meet our Maker, we can enjoy the incredible benefits He has in store for us. To he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. God bless you. Mm -hmm.